Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jay. Join us as we explore diversity of religious belief around the world. What do Lakotas mean when they say all of my relations? And what's a vision quest? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way. Okay, so welcome to our second episode. We're going to be covering Lakota spirituality in this episode. And uh, there's a couple of reasons why I personally wanted to talk about Lakota spirituality, especially considering this is something I know very little about. I think that it's important to talk about Lakota spirituality first because this isn't something you're going to get anywhere else. It was really important to me when thinking about starting this podcast to give not only fresh content, but content that you wouldn't get in other places. So I'm thinking about, I'm not really aware of any religious courses outside of specifically Native American courses or Native American religious spirituality. However, it's defined can be tricky um, across the board in religious departments. Uh, but when you're looking at books, I know in my world religion books, the kind of survey courses, Native American stuff was not covered in any way, shape, or form. Even when you're talking about, quote unquote, American religion, it's not covered. So wanting to provide a space for that, to acknowledge that Native Native American people exist, they have beliefs, we need to be talking about them because I guarantee a vast majority of Americans don't really know anything about that. Fun fact. Um, it was actually illegal until 1974 or 74 or 78 to practice American Indian religious traditions at all in the United States. Interesting. I feel like I remember hearing about that slightly in American history, but not having like the context of until the seventies. Like if you had asked me, I'd be like, Oh, maybe like the 1920s, 1930s, but definitely about 40, 50 years off. So that's probably why no one knows anything about it, because it's only been around or people have been able to practice, again, resurgence for the last 40 years. Um, well, I guess, is that 40 or 50? Mm, 40-ish. I'm not good at math. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't do math. Um, it was 78. I looked it up. It was 1978. Okay, so yes, in less than 50 years ago. Um, yeah. Another reason why I wanted to, to do this is because this Nobody's is the work math, that you so. do. <laughs> Um, But this is the work that you do, uh, specifically what your entire stuff in your under or your master's program is, what's Mm going to be in your PhD program. And even though I know nothing about this, I think that, you know, I really believe in accessibility. So if people are going to call themselves academics and they're going to create academic work, they need to create work that is accessible to all people, not just other academics, people who they're actually writing about and talking about in any Joe the plumber who wants to read about what you're doing. And so I think that for me, this is a challenge for you to talk about your work in an accessible way. That's awesome. Um, I haven't heard Joe the plumber in how long? That's great. That that's my favorite one to use. I like to it's always like, oh Jane Doe, John Doe. But no, I'm gonna go with Joe the Plumber. Joe the Plumber Um, is perfect. But I think that it is a great excuse to force you to make the work accessible. And I also, yes. as your friend and former colleague, think the work that you're doing is really awesome in terms That's of, nice. especially, well, mostly because, you know, as a white man, you really center Native people in your work and make sure that you're not just giving them a space to speak, but uplifting their voices and a lot of I think a lot of allies particularly white people aren't doing that so um I want to acknowledge that but also just as a challenge to you like let's talk about the work that you're doing and make it accessible to other people so that's you know another Mm -hmm. one of my personal motivations for having this be a really early episode and then the kind of third reason is because it's relevant to our time I think particularly with uh with DAPL having happened you know, it's easy to say that shouldn't happen to those people. We need to protect them. This isn't right. But it's always those people. We, you know, if you ask a vast majority of Americans who supported no dapple, if they could say anything about what's happening in the community or about the community, I guarantee a vast majority of those people had no idea. They don't like they probably don't know what specific tribes are being effective. Maybe they know the name of the reservation. But beyond that, I think the key details of the community, they probably didn't know. So I think it's important to provide that extra context and 
information and that'll make more sense i think as we go through the um through the podcast today but just you know i think the key question is why does it matter aside from them being humans and mean like don't need to be awful to other humans it's let's get the context information because while it's easy to say that they're humans and we need to do something about it we really know that it's when we can make that relation with someone that's when it matters I, to me the number one uh, example is gay marriage it initially the strategy was people need to come out to their families because when they came out people could say oh i know someone who is gay therefore i'm going to care about this more and support it similarly i think that when people know and have context they're going to care more and we can't just um hope that people are going to be good humanitarians and care because it's other people. I mean, I wish we could, but we can't. So we can provide that information. And you were saying that this also impacts Keystone. I'll let you talk more about that. Um, Yeah. So while Dapple got lots of uh, press coverage, at least later in the movement, um, the Keystone XL pipeline, which affects the reservation that I've worked most on, the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, which is... If you know where Pierre, South Dakota is, that's the capital. It's about 45 minutes from Pierre. Um, The Keystone XL pipeline affects their reservation primarily, um, and it was shut down originally um, back during the Obama presidency. And one of Trump's first um, executive orders, I think it was three days after he um, was sworn into office, was to reinstate the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone XL Pipeline. And while DAPL kind of is pretty much finished, um, there are some resistance movements at the end of the pipeline, which is down in Louisiana. Um, It's called the Bayou Bridge Pipeline down there. Um, Apart from that, the Keystone XL Pipeline really hasn't gotten a lot of media coverage unless you follow uh, pipeline protest movements and things like that. But even just within the last week, uh, the pipeline had been shut down by either, it was either a state or a federal court. They had denied an injunction to uh, build a right-of-way, which is basically just saying you can use the land. Um, and just last week, that injunction got overturned, so they're now working on the pipeline again, even though they don't actually ever stop working on it when the courts shut them down, which is a whole other issue in and of itself. But So this is uh, something that is going to continue to be an issue. Um, there are, when I spoke with folks up on Cheyenne River about the Dakota Access Pipeline, several of them mentioned how there was going to be similar issues with the Keystone XL Pipeline in terms of going through traditional burial grounds, um, destroying sacred sites, things like that. So it's something that's still, even though it's not totally in the media as much as dapple was it's still going on yeah and it's important to have the context i mean we want to support those people but also like knowing about them and why you could say that destroying sacred sites is bad but um why are they sacred not not saying that you need the justification for that but i think knowing it just yeah knowing the more like human side of things to say something's sacred is one thing but to know like that it's still a living breathing site because of the people who are still practicing these traditions are using it and are utilizing that. Um, that takes it one step further, I think. Yeah. So, okay. We've spent a lot of time talking about the, why we want to do this episode, giving you some context. Maybe we should actually start talking about Lakota <laughs> spirituality, but one more thing. Before so before we start, I do, <laughs> yes, the last kind of preface thing, I think it's important to talk about terminology, uh, especially because I think that a lot of terms get thrown around and people don't necessarily know what's right, what's wrong, why someone used this versus that, right? So the first thing I'm going to do is kind of provide some basic terms that are used to talk about certain people. Um, So the first one is American Indian. I think a lot of us have heard this. Uh, We know the history that Columbus really messed this up, but it can kind of be, I mean, it's it's true. Columbus is the reason why we use Indian in America, Mm -hmm. but um, you you can define it as a person who's pre-Columbian ancestors are from what is now the lower 48 uh, states in the United States. That doesn't make sense. The lower 48. Um, So that's specifically (laughs) American Indian, meaning that they are from the continental United States. 
Then we have Native American, which is used to refer to a person whose pre-Columbian ancestors are from the Americas, being North, South, and Central. Next, we have Alaska Native, which in its name kind of speaks to what it is, but pre-Columbian ancestors are from what is now Alaska, the nice cold state <clears throat> where apparently you can see Russia. We <laughs> uh, <laughs> got a Joe the Plumber and a Sarah Palin reference into this episode, and we're not even 10 minutes in. <laughs> I do what I can. Awesome. I do what I can. I love that. <laughs> Um, going a little further south and warmer, we have Native Hawaiian, and these are people whose pre-Columbian ancestors are from Hawaii. Uh, so what? also kind of intuitive. <laughs> then we have First Nations people, and this is the preferred term for people whose pre-Columbian ancestors are from what is now Canada. So a couple of terms for people who are in the United States, um, and then a couple of terms, one the difference being Native Americans versus First Nation people being preferred by people in Canada. And then we have the kind of all-encompassing term indigenous people, which is referred to any of the fourth world nations. And these are people who were previously or currently living under colonialism, which I really like that idea of a fourth world being connected to colonialism, because I think mm -hmm. that there's, when we talk about like well, I guess there's a second world. Now I'm like showing my ignorance. But like oftentimes <laughs> the third world is like seen as like very negative. And yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I support colonialism, but this idea that like we are a collective people who have been screwed by colonialism, like yes. this is who we are. Yes. Um, I, I really like that. And then we have our, uh, okay, so we have native people. And this is a generic term used in the United States if a specific tribe isn't known. For that person or if in certain cases it's not necessary uh, and then the last one is indian nation and this is the proper name for an american indian tribe specific uh, emphasis on american here so this is not something you would use for our friends up north in canada and those are kind of the basic terms so we'll put those in the show notes just so people can have some something to reference but again american indian native american alaskan native Native Hawaiian, First Nations, Indigenous people, Native people, and Indian Nation. So those are our terms. And now we will finally start talking about Lakota spirituality. So as before someone you, who we, is coming... on. <laughs> oh, yes. Just oh, kidding. Okay, I was um, No, you're good. Um, one thing to say, like, that's a lot of terms that all sort of overlap in this weird sort of um, muddy Venn diagram. Um, in my experience working with indigenous peoples and native folks in the United States, American Indian and Native American are super popular. Um, those are probably the most popular terms you'll use. You'll hear people use to describe um, indigenous peoples from the United States generally. Um, but in my experience, most people prefer to be referred to by their tribal affiliation. Um, so Lakota folks prefer to be called Lakota. Sometimes people like to be called Sioux, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, so if I was going to suggest people use terms, I would stick to American Indian and um, Native American, because those are pretty much, if you say those, no one's going to be offended, generally speaking. In the United States, but if you have in the United Canada, States, right. then you should probably say First Nation. And First uh, Nations is really starting to become more popular in the U.S. too um, as a way to recognize the sovereign status of indigenous nations uh, in the U.S. too. Oh. So um, like KU's um, indigenous student organization is called the First Nations Student Association. Um, oh, FINSA. Yeah. So they and that was why they adopted that. I know a couple of folks who were uh, part of the movement to get that organization started. So. Okay, uh, so starting to talk about Lakota people, I have a question as someone who is a novice and knows very little about this. Can you tell me, because I've heard Lakota, you just said Sioux, I've heard Dakota. So can you kind of talk through what these three things are, what they mean, what I should be saying? We're calling this Lakota spirituality. So I'm mm -hmm. feeling like Lakota is the preferred term, but if you can just give some context into those three 
that would be incredibly helpful. I don't know if anyone else cares, but I personally care. No, I think I think it's really important to talk about that because pretty much everyone has seen Dances with Wolves. So people should know a little bit of context for what's going on in that movie. Um, so there's a lot of uh, differences of opinion in terms of what people like to be referred to. Um, I know that in the community I work in, Lakota gets used a lot. Um, and I, I would be pretty comfortable saying that people from Cheyenne River prefer to be called Lakota, but you'll find people that say otherwise. Um, but to refer to like, we'll start big and we'll get smaller. Um, so okay. the first term to know is Ocheti Shakowin, which is Lakota for seven council fires. Um, and this is including people that are Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota, which are three separate groups within this bigger um, cultural group called the Osheti Shakowin. Now, within okay. each of those groups, it gets really kind of complicated. So within each of those groups, there are different bands. Um, and those, so within Lakota, there are seven bands, um, and we'll have something in the show notes that describes all of this. So I have a nice graphic um, that you can look at and helps it make a little more sense um, how they're all connected. Yes, I'm looking at it. It's helping a lot as you're talking yeah, about this. It's, it's, it's a, I use it when I, when I teach students about this because um, it's like way better than anything I could ever describe. <laughs> so um, then we move on to what the Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota means. So these are primarily linguistic designations that were placed on these communities by non-native researchers, like mm. you know, early ethnographers, early um, missionaries, people like that. Okay. Um, and that is because of several different, or a few key different um, linguistic things in, I'm, I'm not a linguist, so I don't know the actual term, but the, um, <laughs> between those three groups. The one example that I do know that I use a lot to describe this difference is in Lakota, the word for friend is Kola. In Nakota, it's Kona. And in Dakota, it's Koda. Um, so that's oh, part okay. of the difference. Is, I'm not a linguistic person, but I've, I've studied a few languages. So this is actually very different, similar to, you know, languages in a language family. I'm thinking yeah. of, I mean, I, the easy one would be romance languages, but I'm thinking of, um, like Hebrew and Arabic, which are very similar. And so their words, like I think it's uh, king is Malik and like Malik between the two. Yeah. I could be mispronouncing the Hebrew one. Hebrew is not my area of expertise. I wouldn't know. I'm more about Arabic, <laughs> but like the similarities. So yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And that like one language family, but just broken up into three um, yeah. areas here. Yeah. And so um, if you want to think about where we're talking about geographically in terms of those three groups. The Dakotas are the easternmost groups. So we're talking parts of Minnesota over into eastern South and North and South Dakota. And then the Nakotas are in central South Dakota, central North and South Dakota, mostly South Dakota. And then Lakotas are the westernmost group, which is over in North and South Dakota. And then what states next to North South Dakota? Is it Wyoming? I should know this. Sure. Is it Wyoming? I don't know. Somebody Google it for us. <laughs> um, I should know that. Um, but so that's sort of how those are distributed geographically. And again, there's we'll have a bunch of maps in the show notes um, that kind of. So, question: that. The state that you just named yes. is that where they would have traditionally been? Traditionally being pre-Columbus and pre-colonization. Mm -hmm. uh, or is that where they kind of settled as uh, colonists started moving east in the present more, more or less both. Um, oh, okay. So traditionally, Ocheti Shakowin peoples were had people had groups that were more of a woodlands group, which is what like an which is an anthropological designation for people that lived in the eastern woodlands and Great Lakes regions. Um, so they were over into Minnesota, even as far over as into parts of Western Wisconsin sometimes. Um, and then again, all the way West to parts of Wyoming 
it is Wyoming that's over there. Wyoming, South Dakota, and then north and south, um, Ocheti Shakoin peoples went clear up into what is now Canada, came clear down into central Nebraska. Um, so a big, pretty big region. And there's another map that we'll have in the show notes that kind of shows over time the shrinking in land base by Lakota peoples. So you can kind of get a visual idea of what that looked like. Okay, so that's the Lakota Dakota Sioux. And oh, actually, that's just Lakota and Dakota. So where does Sioux come yeah. from? Okay, so Sioux is so when there's a lot of different terms for many different indigenous groups. Um, there are terms that they use themselves. There are terms that other communities use to describe them. Um, there are terms that Europeans decided to use. And so Sioux comes from kind of a combination of two of those things. So back in the day when French fur traders were in the Great Lakes region, they ended up in what is now Wisconsin, Minnesota, and they asked whoever it was that they ran into there. It was an Ojibwe-speaking group. Um, so it could have been Potawatomis. It could have been a whole bunch of different groups um, lived up in that region at the time. And they asked them, who are those people that live out there on the prairie out to the west? And from what most of the research shows, or what it's kind of a story at this point. I don't even know of any one particular document where this has been documented, but um, the Ojibwa word that they used was Nataweisu, and my Ojibwa pronunciations are not very good, so if you're Ojib, please forgive me. Um, the And that means either little adders or little snakes, or I've read some other things that argue that they were talking about the snake-like river, which would be the Missouri River, and uh, wow. many Ocheti-Shakwin peoples lived in and around the area of the Missouri River. Um, a lot of them still do. Um, and then the French fur traders then sort of bastardized this term into Sioux. And so they added the X because they're French and you got to put an X on the end of everything. Okay. So that's where Sioux comes from. And you'll hear people who are um, Lakota, Nakota, Dakota refer to themselves as Sioux. I mean, I work with a couple people who do that. Um, a uh, lot of folks okay. that I know use the term sort of interchangeably. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the, really what this says to me is that there are specific names out there. People go by what they want to go by. The, I think they just, just ask. It's very similar. So if you see yeah. a person, you don't know what their pronouns are. So you should just ask them mm-hmm. what their pronouns are. That's uh, okay. So that that's helpful. Like there are all these names, but just ask people at the end of the day. Okay. So my second question, it's kind of jumping around is, can you, we've talked about this, people listening in the promo. Um, and you mentioned it earlier at the top of the podcast. What does all my relations mean? So Madakiase <clears throat> comes from the Lakota oral tradition. And I think one of the easiest places to point to this is with the creation story. So in the Lakota creation story, the beginning of the world starts with Ia, which means um, stone. And we'll put all the spellings for all these Lakota terms down in the show notes for you. Um, Ia existed in total darkness. And Ia is what's called a Wakan being. And so Wakan beings are kind of it usually gets translated as holy in like the Christian sense, which isn't really perfect um, because Wakan has to do with having the ability to create and destroy, um, being also good and evil at the same time. And so Eon is able to start creating things. And so what Eon does is Eon bleeds itself out and creates Makah, which is the earth, and then divides that between the land and the water, which is Mani. Um, so Mani, you'll recognize if you followed the Dakota Access Pipeline protest movement, the uh, sort of slogan for the movement was Mani Wichoni, which means water is life. Um, so you have the you have Eos creating the earth and water, and Makah is saying it's cold. You know, I'm cold, it's dark. And so Eos responds by creating the sun on Petui. 
and it brings light and warmth to the earth. And then to provide that balance for that, that warmth and light, Ea creates the moon or Hawi. Um, so then Ea wants to um, provide the breath of life in the form of the wind or Tate. And then Maka requests that Maka has something to cover herself with, to cover um, all of the earth with. And so Ea responds by creating all of the plants and the animals that live on the earth. And then these exist as a covering for Maka. And basically, it's sort of this idea that Ea creates these beings, these creatures, the plants and the animals, and it is Maka's job or responsibility to care for them. Um, so at this point, Ea is very, very weak and is almost completely blood dry. And the very, very last thing Ea does is creates humans. And it creates, or Ea creates women to be like the earth, to give life and nourishment to all of her children. So we see this relationship between the earth and women. So Maka is caring for plants and animals while women bring life into the world and then they care for them. They care for their children. And men are to be like the universe and provide nourishment and protection for all of their family members, essentially. And at this point, Ea is completely bled dry and crumbles and is spread all across the earth. So this story really clearly illustrates this idea of we are all related or all of my relations in that it shows where at the beginning of time, there was this one, this one Wakan being, and through its sacrifice, basically, everything is created in the world. And so everything is, create, is related through the blood of Enoch. And all of those beings in that story, so the earth, the moon, the sun, the winds, these are all also Wakan beings. And if you read up more on Lakota oral tradition, more than what we're going to talk about today, you'll see them come up over and over again as they're this really important cast of characters that influence the creation of the earth and also help move things along for humans along the way. So I hope that's clear. Yes, that's very helpful. Okay, yes. good. That's, um, okay. that's, I mean, it, it actually makes a lot of sense in the terms that with this one being, all things are connected. And if we all come from the same being, then obviously we're all related because we all, to a certain degree, share the same literal blood. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I have another question. This might be jumping ahead, okay. but, or all over, probably like That's all fine. over the place. But, um, you know, not everything is linear. So, yes. yay. My question is, I know that a lot of your work has dealt with the oral traditions, but also specifically with uh, tellings of the white buffalo calf woman. Ooh, I yeah. hope I said that right. Yeah, you did. So I'm wondering, and I, I think my understanding, um, I'll be the first to say I did not read your thesis. So okay, I haven't read it since Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but, but I'm pretty sure that that is an important story mm -hmm. in Lakota spirituality. Yeah. So one, am I right? And then two, can you explain the, the that story? I think it's a really cool story, but if you can kind of give us the brief version yeah. and explain the importance yeah. of it. Yeah, so the white buffalo calf woman is... And her, the associated oral traditions with her is probably the most important individual or important event in the history of Lakota spirituality. Um, so not to be reductionist, yeah. but one could say this is like Jesus in Easter of Lakota? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, You're not the first person to make that comparison. Um a lot of Jesuit missionaries in like the 50s and 60s made that exact comparison. Okay, but that's not something to like, I want to, I'm proud of being connected. Well, no, no, I mean, because I've heard Lakota people make that comparison too. Um, to kind of show like, okay. this is how important 
this story is and the associated pipe with this story. That's how important and central this is to our belief system. I see. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's not a bad thing okay. to be thrown in with Jesuit missionaries all the time. So tell us about the white, uh, yeah, <laughs> white Catholic. Oh, now you're I messed good, it up. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so this narrative is super, super important. Um, so essentially the story goes, and I'll give you the very cliff notes version. Um, at some point in the past, um, before Europeans arrived in the Americas, um, the Ochetti Shakoin had met for the summer, their summer sort of gathering. They had all split off into their own bands, one band, they're off roaming the South Dakota Prairie and they can't find any food. So they send a couple of guys out to go, you know, scout ahead and find some food, find some, you know, pronghorn sheep or whatever. And they are out in the prairie. They can't find anything. And they see this individual walking towards them off in the distance. And at first they think it's, an, you know, someone from an enemy tribe, um, they're not really sure. So they kind of creep closer and closer and they realize it's a woman and they get a little bit closer. And one of the, one of the two scouts is romantically interested in this, in this woman um, to the point where he essentially in most of the stories tries to rape her. Um, oh my. And when he does, this is this, well, this is like the ultimate like female empowerment right here. Um, when he tries to, in some stories, she's also, in some stories, she is completely naked. In other stories, she's clothed in white buckskin. Kind of depends on who you ask. Um, but when he goes and tries to uh, assault her, she um, calls down um, either smoke or a cloud, and it envelops both of them. And when the cloud dissipates, he's nothing but like a pile of dust and bones. Wow. So she like totally roasts him. It's awesome. Because don't Literally. do that. Don't rape people. Yeah, really. So this other scout that's standing there and sees all of this, he's like, whoa, it's all good. I didn't see anything. I'm just going to leave. And she's like, no, 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 it's cool. Um, she's like, you know, you come to me with, you know, pure heart, good intentions, unlike your homeboy. And um, I'm going to bring something to your tribe, to your community that is going to help sustain you as a people. Um, and so you need to go back. Um, you're going to have to prepare for me to arrive. And then when I come in four days time, you know, I'll, I'll bring you this thing. So he goes back. He tells everyone in his community. They get ready for her. They follow her, her instructions because she had very specific instructions. And then she arrives and she's carrying a buffalo um, hide bundle. And inside of the bundle is a pipe. And it has two parts. It has a wooden stem and then a pipe stone uh, bowl. And I, I can find a picture of Link so you get kind of an idea of what these pipes look like. And she teaches the community that you use this pipe to communicate with Wakantanka, which is sometimes translated as God, which isn't really a good translation. Thank you, Catholics. Um, Basically, it means like all of the spiritual beings in the universe, and it's broken down specifically into different categories and groups and things. But basically, this is how you pray to any of the spiritual forces in the universe is you're going to use this pipe. And she explains that you need to use this particular tobacco. It's called shinshasha. It's actually not at all tobacco. It's the inner bark of the red willow tree. And she explains how to collect it. Um, and how to use it. And then she explains, or she teaches this community in the, what are called the seven Lakota sacred ceremonies. Um, and then she leaves and she turns into a buffalo calf in four different colors, um, yellow, red, or yellow, white, black, um, yellow, white, black, and red, sorry. Um, I've got the order mixed, mixed up, but basically the last one she turns into is a white buffalo calf, and that's where her name comes from. Um, and so that pipe is still in the possession of the Lakota people, that specific pipe, through a direct line of ascendancy all the way back to the first person who it was given to. Um, and that is kept by 
Arvel Looking Horse, who is a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux tribal community. Um, he lives in Greengrass, South Dakota, um, and he holds the pipe today. And he's the 19th keeper. So if you can, if you're good at math and you can figure out oh, generationally wow. um, how far back that is. Um, so that is that pipe. Arva Looking Horse describes it as being, quote, our religion. Like he describes the pipe as being basically all of it. Um, that is the whole thing. If you understand the pipe, you can understand most of Lakota spirituality. Um, okay. So, so she, so yeah, so she's super important and her, the oral tradition surrounding her is really important. Um, and so these ceremonies that she brings, there's the Inipi, which is sweat, sweat or purification lodge, which I'll talk about. I'm only going to talk about three of these because they're the most commonly practiced and the ones that I'm most familiar with. Um, the Hamblechiapi, which is crying for vision, or you've probably heard of vision quests. Um, there's Wiwanyawachipi, which is the Sundance. There's Hunkalawampi, which is the making of relatives. It's a sort of adoption ceremony. Um, there's this one I'm really not good at pronouncing. Um, this one is the Ishnati Awichalawampi, which is the female puberty ceremony. Forgive me on that pronunciation. Um, there is the Tapa Wankayayapi, which is the throwing of the ball, which is this ceremony that is, support a, is supposed to um, sort of recreate the um, sort of the, I don't want to say chaos, but the like disorder of the universe. Um, and then there is the Wanagi Yuhapi, or, which is the spirit or soul keeping ceremony, which is a type of ceremony that you do when someone has died sort of suddenly, unexpectedly. Um, it's a way to make sure that their spirit moves on to the Lakota afterlife um, successfully. Mm, okay. So the three that I'm going to talk about are the Sweat Lodge, the Crying for Vision, and Sundance. Um, and again, that's because in my experience with the folks that I've worked with, these are the three most commonly practiced um, ceremonies. I know that the female puberty ceremony has had kind of fallen out of favor over the last probably 100 or so years. Um, but it is now because of a couple organizations having a sort of resurgence, um, which is kind of cool to see. Um, and basically what they're doing is it's like, you just learn how to be a Lakota woman when you have your first period, which is really kind of a cool thing. Um, yeah. Um, so oh, cool. back to sweat lodge. So sweat lodges, you've probably heard about from white people who aren't Lakota or native in any way, shape or form. Um, doing them and using blue tarps and getting people killed, um, which is not fun. Don't do that. Um, basically, for the Lakota sweat lodges, I want to talk about that one first because sweat lodges are a frequent part of many of the other ceremonies. So sweat lodges can happen on their own. You can just go to sweat, and that's all you're doing. But a lot of the time, sweat lodges will happen before and or after other ceremonies. So they're a part of a bigger um, ritual. So sweat lodges, basically what they are is a lodge is constructed out of 16 willow um, branches. And... These are, and this, this lodge is not very big, so it's probably anywhere between four and five feet high and maybe six to eight feet in diameter. So overall pretty small. Um, and that's all covered with blankets, not blue tarps from Harbor Freight um, because it needs to breathe. And inside of the lodge, in the very center of the lodge, a hole is dug in the ground. And this is where the rocks that have been sitting in a fire all day or for several hours are brought in and put in this little um, depression in the ground. And then when it's time to actually go into the sweat lodge, individuals will enter the lodge. Usually you, you will enter the lodge after the person who's leading the ceremony. So they'll be the first ones in and also the first ones out. Um, and you enter and you go around the outside of the lodge clockwise. So you file in and go around the edge of the lodge. 
How many people are inside um, it depends. of Lodge since it's pretty So small. I've been in La- I've been in Sweat before with as few as four other people. I've been in Sweat before with as many as seven or eight other people. Uh, I've heard Sweat Lodges where okay. there's like absolutely no room and you're like right up on the person next to you. Um, so it really varies on in terms of why you're performing the sweat. Um, because then that sort of dictates who is there. Um, and so usually okay. it's family members of, if you're like doing some sort of ceremony for a particular individual, it'll be family members of that person. Um, and so it can be a lot of people. Um, and traditionally, uh, women did not sweat until after menopause. Um, so for Lakota people, a woman's period is seen as a purification and a cleansing of themselves. So basically women have this built-in purification mechanism and men have to go do this thing where we sit in a sweat lodge and sweat um, to become purified. And it's seen as um, a, woman's peri- a woman's period is seen as particularly um, powerful. So it's not seen as necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's seen as very spiritually powerful, and if a woman is, there's all sorts of um, rules about when a woman's on her period, what she can and can't be around. Like, for instance, women on their periods can't be around pipes. They can't be around certain um, types of herbs and things that are used in ceremony. Um, and that's because their spiritual power in that time of their menstrual cycle is so high that it can throw everything else off, basically. Um, which is like a very like sort of different way of looking at it from the sort of Western perspective. After everyone files in, they bring in the rocks and it depends on the type of ceremony. Sometimes you'll have four rocks. Sometimes you'll have seven. Sometimes you'll have 16. These are all sort of important numbers um, in Lakota, in Lakota spirituality. So like 16 is four fours. Um, Seven is important for other reasons, but um, so you have a bunch of rocks that get brought in, and these have been sitting in a fire for several hours, if not all day. Um, so they're very hot. And when you're inside of it, um, you're already getting hot and sweaty, and the flap, the front flap, is still open. So when it starts, they close the flap. The uh, person leading the ceremony will throw water on these superheated rocks, and then it fills with steam, and it's literally the most intense sauna you'll ever be in in your life. Um, What they do is they will sing different songs, say certain prayers over the course of 15 minutes, and roughly 15 minutes, give or take. Um, And it gets to be about 140 degrees inside the lodge at about 100% humidity. Um, So so as you can imagine... So how long are you inside? I mean, the prayers have last 15 minutes, but... At 100% humidity, I don't care what the temperature is. At 100% humidity, how long can people so your body, stay the human inside? body, can stand 140 degrees Fahrenheit for a roughly 15 minutes, conveniently. Um, so after okay. the end of that 15 minutes, and you sat there and thought, "Holy cow," and rethought every single decision that led you to being in this sweat lodge, as I did as an undergrad and an intern when I first the first time I sweat, and. Um, they open the flap. And so then you get a little bit of air inside. Um, you can drink some water that they have there that they're throwing on the rocks. They'll pass you some water if you want some, um, things like that. And then they close the flap again, and you do that two more times. After you open the, so this will be after the third session, you open the flap again, then they will bring in the pipe. And all of the participants, it will be passed from the left-hand side clockwise all the way around back to the flap. Um, And everyone will smoke the pipe. And then they close the flap one last time. And then um, a series of prayers and songs are sung. You have a fourth round. And then you are allowed to, then they open the flap and then everyone gets out. Um, It's usually like most Lakota ceremonies, it's followed by a meal, which is awesome because you're really hungry. Um, 
but you feel like you have like run a marathon and you feel fantastic. It's it's pretty great. So I guess so. Judging by if my math is correct, in there the ceremony itself is roughly an hour with mm-hmm. breaks because mm-hmm. four periods of fifteen minutes with the flap closed, and then however long the flap is open, depending on how long it takes to do whatever. So, but you're actually in the enclosure itself, right. closed for an hour, and then with sort yeah. of breaks, we're allowed to. And it's still hot. I mean, it's still it stays warm in okay. there because it doesn't have water. a whole lot of air circulation. But yeah, the, in total, you're probably in there for maybe anywhere between an hour and fifteen minutes, maybe an hour and forty-five minutes, depending on how long the breaks are and how you know how quick they get things going. Wow. Alrighty, that is. Yeah. I can see where the purification could come from. I I don't see how anything that yeah, is impure I mean, you definitely, could still be inside uh, you after that. You definitely feel it. That's for sure. Um, so the next one I want to mm-hmm. talk about is Hamblechiapi or crying for vision. Um, this is frequently referred to as the vision quest. Um, that term. I don't. I can't think of an instance where I've heard a Lakota person call it a vision quest. Um, there's a lot of like sort of colloquial terms they'll use for it. Um, the m- most popular one that I've heard is go- called going up on the hill, um, because part of this involves going up on a hill and sitting by yourself. Um, and so this one is sort of the um, sort of like the teenage rite of passage. Um, you usually will do this for the first time when you're a teenager, 13, 14 years old. Um, but it can be like repeated throughout the course of your life. And the purpose is to basically it's, it's called crying for vision because you're crying in the sense of like, not like crying tears, but crying in a sense that you're calling out for a vision that you're praying. Um, and, you're trying to receive some sort of vision from the Wakan beings. And that vision in turn sort of gives you, I gives you an idea of what, you know, your path in life is. Um, or if you had, if you went to uh, go up on the hill for a specific like question or reason, then it will help you sort of answer that question. And so after a person's decided to do this and they find uh, spiritual leader to help them perform the ceremony. They'll be led out to an isolated location. Like I said before, it's usually on the top of a hill somewhere. Um, and this person will be left they'll, inside of an altar that they've constructed, just made out of um, these tobacco ties. It's a, it's a chain of tobacco ties, which are these little... Um, basically little bundles of fabric in different colors that um, are full of tobacco. And the participant will, um, will produce those, will create those before they go up. And they sit in this altar for a period of days without food or water. Um, and they will say specific prayers over that period of time. And then at some point, they will um, receive a vision. And throughout the course of this, the spiritual leader who has taken them up there will be kind of keeping an eye on them from a distance um, and making sure that they're not one cheating and eating and drinking. Um, Because if it rains while you're up there, you know, you could, you know, conceivably drink some water. Um, And also to make sure like you're good, you know, you're not like dying or anything. Um, But after you've received your vision, they will bring you down off the hill. And then as part of a sweat lodge, you will recount your vision and then that spiritual leader will help you sort of interpret it and uh, determine, you know, what what the spirit world was trying to tell you. Wait, just to clarify. So you're up on the hill. Mm-hmm. You don't eat. You don't drink. Right. And then you go into the sweat lodge. Oh, well, actually, I left out the fact that, like, you start in the sweat lodge. Before you go up on the hill, you actually will sweat before. So then you, so okay. you sweat. Then you go and don't eat for a period of days. Usually it's like four days. Um, and then you go back, you go back down to the sweat lodge. Yes. Just, okay. Just want to make sure I heard that correctly. Yes, you did. Um, and so that one, um, is interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. The one reason that I think it's particularly interesting is, 
Um, the altars that have been constructed over time have changed a lot. Um, before the reservation era, they were more, so we're talking like pre-1890, um, they were more, or they were less temporary than they are now. They were more of a permanent fixture. So for instance, someone goes up on a, goes up on the hill, if they were to have another, um, another vision or want to go, you know, seek another vision, they would go to that exact same place and cry for vision there again. And they would create as a part of their, as part of this, they would create these stone effigies that were in different shapes. Um, some of the sites that were related to the Dakota access pipeline protests that were destroyed as a part of the, uh, construction of the pipeline were sites that had, um, astronomical figures. So like the Big Dipper came up a lot and that's really important because the Big Dipper, um, Lakota people in Lakota spirituality believe that there's a hole in the center of the, the cup of the Big Dipper and that that is where your spirit travels before it goes on to the afterlife. Um, and so that is a really important, um, location, I guess. Um, and so there were a lot of like those sorts of, uh, effigies created out of stones on the ground. Now today it's very temporary, the altar space. So the participant will go up on the hill and will construct this altar and then we'll tear it down before they leave. Do they use that altar again for a different time when they go for their crying for vision or does that altar become something that's sacred in their home or passed on like i guess does it get used again and if not what happens to it okay so it's not really an altar in the sense of like if you're thinking about like a buddhist altar or like a, an altar at the front of a christian church um it's not something that's necessarily physical it's more an altar in that it is a space in this world that is designated as separate so okay the so the altar will be designated by four poles that are put in the ground for sticks in like a square. And the tobacco tie chain will be run around those. So that area inside of that is the altar. And that's where the person will stand or sit throughout the course of the, of the ceremony. Okay. So that is totally deconstructed. Now you could hypothetically go back to that specific location. And I don't know if that necessarily happens. Um, but I do know that a lot of like, if you have a particular hill, um, where you cry for vision, it might be the place where your mom and dad cried for vision. It might, you know, that hill might be the place where people in your family go. Um, you may not be uh, in, okay. in the exact same place, but that hill itself would, could be the place where your family members have been. I see. Um, so the last one that I want to talk about is, Wiwanya Wachipi or the Sundance. Um, this one is practiced right around this time of year, actually, um, June and July, usually. Um, and it's a sort of Thanksgiving ceremony of sorts. Um, what'll happen is you'll have a spiritual leader who will lead a ceremony. So you know, if my family has this particular spiritual leader we work with, we'll go to his Sundance. But if your family works with this other spiritual leader on the other side of the reservation, you'll go to their Sundance. Um, so there are multiple, so there's not like necessarily one giant Sundance that's happening. And all of those Sundances may not happen on the same day, the same time, things like that. Um, but what will happen is at that person's Sundance grounds, they'll have a sort of arbor that's a circular arbor that's constructed. Um, so if you've ever been to a powwow, a powwow arbor is somewhat similar to that in shape and gives you kind of an idea of what it looks like. Um, and in the middle will be basically a full-grown cottonwood tree will be planted. Ooh, cottonwood. So That's the state tree in Kansas. Yes. For anyone who didn't know. Is it really? You yes, know it that. is. <laughs> so they they'll go out participants who are going to um help with the sundance will go out and the spiritual leader will 
will designate or will identify a tree that is to be used, and they will cut it down. And when they cut it down, they will not let it touch the ground. So they'll like catch it as it's coming down, and they will carry it all the way to where this arbor is constructed, and they will plant it in the center of this arbor. And there's specific things that they will tie into the tree, like tobacco ties are one thing. Um, and then they will have um, people who are going to be the sun dancers. So when you decide to participate in Sundance, usually you pledge to do this about a year or so beforehand. Um, and that's because there's a particular way that you're supposed to live your life over that next year so that you are prepared for this ceremony. Um, one of the things is you're not supposed to drink alcohol over the course of that year. And there's a lot of other um, sort of uh, requirements, basically. Um, and so the dancers will come to the Sundance Arena and they will be attached to this tree with leather um, strips that are tied to the tree and they will have their pecs pierced with uh, short pieces of wood and then these pieces of wood will be tied to these leather strips that are hanging off this tree. And their sole purpose is to then dance until they break free from the tree. And... Quick question. Yes. By breaking free from the tree, do we mean the rope breaks from the tree or the wood that has pierced their chest breaks free? Either. Okay. So the point is to basically the flesh that is torn out from... So say, for instance, you you tore out and the, the little wooden dowels are pulled out of your chest. The flesh that is pulled out is seen as an offering. Okay. And so if, for instance, like you were saying, if the like leather strips break, then what will happen is the um, person who's leading the Sundance will cut out those, um, will cut those out. Um, sometimes they'll just tie you back to the tree, but um, like if it's, if you've been dancing for a couple days, which can happen sometimes, um, they may cut you out or they'll have um, some of your family members come out and pull you off of the tree so that they pull out of your chest. Um, oh, okay. So, uh, so yeah, so they dance until this is pulled out of their chest and that, that flesh is seen as an offering. And then there's specific things they do with that afterwards. Um, there are also other dancers. You don't also don't necessarily have to be tied to the tree. Some dancers will have their backs pierced instead. And then those, uh, then they'll be tied to buffalo skulls that they will then dance and drag on the ground behind them. And then that's traditionally men. So men traditionally do those things. Women um, back, you know, 100 or so years ago didn't necessarily pierce or do anything like that. Um, but now I've heard stories of women who will have eagle feathers sewn into like their upper arms. And then they will pull those out. In okay. much the same way that the dancers are pulling out of their chests. Mm, okay. Um, and so after that happens, the scarification that happens is is desirable. You basically want to have scars, and so you won't have any sort of um, you won't like go to the doctor to get those sutured up. Um, they'll pack them with traditional herbs, and then basically send you on your way. And then you'll have like you know stuff that you're supposed to clean it with and all of that. Um, but you don't ever go, you don't want to go to the doctor and then just get those stitched up to hide them. Um, and so you'll see people who will have lots of different, uh, scars on their chest from doing this. Is there a point at which you are no longer able to participate? What do you mean? Like, is a person like, say you have too many scars or mm -hmm. is there like a threshold of age where, you know, people who are 80 above can't, participate in this or just is it open as long as you can presumably do it you know i i honestly don't know um i've never heard of elders doing it um but i wouldn't say that that's impossible um most of the folks that i know that do it are young men um in their 20s 30s 
even up to their 40s. Um, but I, yeah, I honestly don't know if there's a cutoff age-wise. Um, so yeah. Cool. That's pretty much what I got. Yeah. So we've gone over the terms, Lakota versus Dakota versus Sioux, what all my relations mean, some ceremonies, a little bit of history, where they're located, where they used to be located, uh, the white buffalo calf woman. I probably still said that wrong. Nope, you got it right. Oh, I was going to say, if it's not in front of me, I like will mess it up. But I got it right. I'm not even going to try to say it again. Is there anything else that people should know as a kind of intro to Lakota spirituality before they go and make Lakota friends? Um, One thing... One last thing I think that's worth mentioning is so when when uh, Western folks think about creation, we think about, you know, in, at least in the Christian tradition, Adam and Eve are created, and that's pretty much the crux of the creation narrative. Yes, everything else gets created, but the more important part is Adam and Eve happen, Eve eats the apple or pomegranate, depending on who you ask, and then we're led down this road that then turns into Judaism, Christianity, Islam, right? So for a lot of indigenous peoples, and this includes Lakota people, the creation narrative is important, but it is not the most important narrative explaining humanity and how we got on this earth and what our purpose is on this earth. So the most important narrative in that regard is what's called an emergence narrative. And so what that is, is at some point in the distant past, humanity was under the ground or in some sort of underworld. And then they emerged through a series of you know, circumstances onto this earth. And that's true for Lakota people. Um, their emergence story takes place in what we call the Black Hills. Um, and if you've ever been to Wind Cave, that is the traditionally understood location for where um, Lakota people emerged onto this earth. And that story um, explains, at least in part, the importance of the Black Hills to Lakota people. So if you know anything about the history of the Black Hills traditionally or traditionally um, before um, when the federal government first made treaties with Lakota people um, the original Great Sioux Reservation included the Black Hills until the infamous George Armstrong Custer discovered gold in the Black Hills and then they were quickly seized from Lakota people and now they're you know Custer State Park and, you know, you have Wind Cave National Park. I think it's a national forest, I think. Um, I've been there, I swear. <laughs> and um, so that whole history of originally, you know, retaining possession of them and then having them stolen back. And then in the 90s, the federal government was like, okay, well, we'll pay you for them. And there is currently several million dollars, I can't remember the actual figure, that is sitting in trust for Lakota communities in payment for the Black Hills, but the Lakota people were like, the Black Hills are not for sale. If we take that money, we're acknowledging that we are willing to sell one of the most sacred locations in our universe, um, you know, for a couple million dollars. And um, so that, so if you go to the Black Hills, if you visit Mount Rushmore, and there's a lot of history with Mount Rushmore and um, the, the uh, mountain that it was carved onto, um, personally, just my two cents, it was much prettier before they put four white guys on it. Um, and there's a lot of history with that. So if you ever go to Mount Rushmore, you know, consider the cultural significance of where you are beyond just the American, you know, booyah, we're American. Um, we carved four old white dudes on this mountain. Um, think about the cultural significance of that place for Lakota people. And on that note, that's where we'll end. <laughs> uh <laughs> I want to thank you for listening. If you like what we're doing here, consider leaving us a review. We are now on all the places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, <laughs> Stitcher, 
many more that I can't think of off the top of my head. But if you look, you can probably find us on your favorite place to get podcasts. So please do. You can find us on Twitter at religiouslitpod and on Facebook at facebook.com slash religiously literate. Thanks. And for you can email us. You can oh, email yeah. us at uh, religiously or religiouslitpod or no. Religious Lit Podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. I swear I know our email. Yes. <laughs> Religious Lit Podcast at gmail.com. Um, so, yeah, get at us. Tell us what you want to hear about. Um, yes. And we'll see and what if, we can do. If we did something that you don't like, let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, if people write us, we can share the mail on air. Just send us a note. Let us know what you think. We'd really appreciate it. Yep. And on that note, bye.